This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives by Donna Murch. Drawing its title from one of America's foremost revolutionaries, this collection of thought-provoking essays by award-winning Black Panther Party scholar Donna Murch explores how social protest is challenging our current system of state violence and mass incarceration, exploring how a youth-led political movement has emerged in recent years to challenge the bipartisan consensus on punishment, and looking to the future through a redistributive, queer, and feminist lens. As Kianga Yamada Taylor puts it, Donna Murch is one of the sharpest, most incisive, and elegant writers on racism, radicalism, and struggle today. This is a smart and sophisticated book that should be read and studied by everyone in search of answers to the profound crises that continue to confront this country. Find Asada Taught Me at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives, by Donna Murch. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's episode is my interview with Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House. Many of you are probably Chapo listeners and fans. Many others of you, I'm sure, are not, and perhaps only know Chapo by reputation. Whether or not you listen, this interview puts Matt's thinking into The Dig's extensive and exhaustive format— The result is a broad and comprehensive analysis of how American history brought us to this awful present from one of the sharpest and most entertaining thinkers around. Matt and I cover a lot, from the defeat of Reconstruction through the New Deal, to how America's settler colonial promise to resolve the contradictions through free real estate has reached its limit with the present housing crisis. It's a really good conversation. We are as you likely know, on summer schedule right now, which means that we're only releasing about two episodes a month for July and August. I'm using that time to catch up on reading, to do a ton of housing organizing in Rhode Island, and also, occasionally, to take a few days off. We can afford to slow it down for a couple months, only because listeners like you support the podcast at patreon.com slash the dig, and I'm indeed extremely grateful for your support. We don't paywall any episodes at all, which means none of you have to contribute to listen. So it's truly a beautiful thing that so many of you step up to make those contributions to keep this show up and running. We do, though, have gifts to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month. And that's a nice thing. We have left-wing books, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. If you are a regular listener who appreciates what we're doing here, please take a moment to contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. One quick announcement, as you may have heard, I'll be at the Socialism 2022 conference in Chicago hosting a live dig episode. And I now 
can tell you that that live episode will be an interview with Ruth Wilson-Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, and Femi Taiwo on the entirety of this present and very disorienting conjuncture. It's going to be good, so hope to see you in Chicago, September 2nd through 5th. Okay, here's Matt Chrisman, a host of Chapo Trap House and Hell of Presidents, a podcast on American history through its presidents. Matt Chrisman, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you for having me. It's easy to overemphasize how weird things are getting because I think the past was far weirder at the time than we tend to remember it in retrospect. But Absolutely. But but would you agree that American people do seem to be really unraveling right now in a way that is more intense, weird, and scary than usual? Absolutely. Like This is one of those deals where you can say... Uh, oh, this is a process that's always existed, and that you know the past was absolutely much more weird than we remember it because we only remember its artifacts, where they've been turned into a coherent narrative by like the dominant structures that have persisted. So we can't live that weirdness. But what we can do now is resonate our weirdness to each other in a way that we never had the capability of doing before, thanks to the uh, good old fashioned information superhighway. Like this is a deal where you get an accumulation towards a inflection point and then things are qualitatively different like they've been the there's there's been a quantum vaulting into like a new world like a new reality that makes the past a totally foreign country was the internet inevitably always going to be this enemy producing meat grinder that our subjectivities are all processed through today or or is blaming tech missing the more decisive forces at work I mean, I would if I would put it broadly, when the bad guys lost World War or when the bad guys won World War Three, it was inevitable because the notion of an Internet, you know, is, I think, part and parcel to any utopian socialist project of human liberation, like cybernetic technology is what conquers the price signal question, all those Real issues that the that the Hayekians point out in in the in the idea of planned economies, the whole socialist calculation debate, a- absolutely obliterated by the amount of uh, of computing power we have and the ability we have to communicate to each other instantaneously. But that would have required those things being built under conditions of some sort of socialism, you know, uh, uh, some sort of social creative process where we are brought into it as citizens instead of his consumers. And when when the commercial internet emerges, that's the end of the game. And of course, the internet was developed by the state. There is no story of the birth of the internet that does not, at the end of the day, start with the government as prime mover. Uh, So therefore, you have proof that communism absolutely could have created the internet as we understand it, because it basically did. What happened then, though, is that this publicly created thing, people working for government wages, not to um, make billions of dollars in the private sector, building these things to the ability to experiment broadly without having it to boost profits in any sector, pure research, you're able to build things that would be lost in the profit motive, would get sanded down. But once it was created and crafted by the American state, with its voodoo separation between public and private spheres, and then privatized, that infrastructure was going to demand. It was going to eventually stra- wrap us all into the matrix. Basically, we can date the origins of this moment back to different points in time, depending on the story we're trying to tell. But most proximately, two thousand eight really looms large. It was the contradictions of the financialized housing system that blew up 
the entire economy and then, of course, went on to blow up the entire political system and Americans' attachment to that system. But I think a lot of liberals are still committed to seeing Trump's election as the year zero for, for the end of America as as we once knew it. Right. What, what by contrast, is revealed if we zoom out, you know, and we, we're going to zoom out a little more, like, deeper into American and global history later. But if we zoom out just a little bit more to 2008, why why was that crisis so permanently calamitous? Well, because it was the point when the final promise that had been given to the uh, American common person, like we can't even use class things because the point of America is to obliterate class as a lived condition, which it did. So we could talk about class in an American context, but that's not describing its lived experience. So we're just, we're the people. This idea that was not, you could not sustain in Europe, cheek to jowl in those little principalities where land was at a premium. You could sustain that fantasy, that fiction, that social belief in America. So we did, they did create a civic citizenry in a way that uh, more, the, the, the greater, more savage contradictions of European capitalism could not synthesize. So we, we built this system that at the end point of like the final confligatory co- uh, battle between, you know, uh, reactionary and progressive social forces that uh, was the Second World War, you have the victory in the West by capital, which involves the, the political neutering of a working class that had been a fundamental and, and deciding factor in the creation of this New Deal state that was now capable of winning a world war. And then, you know, becoming a world bestriding economic colossus. It had contributed to that victory because it imagined itself as part of a coalition of forces that would eventually overthrow capitalism. And they were uh, neutralized in America. And that meant, uh, and the mechanisms for that were political, economic, social. And, and one of the chief ones was the creation of a, of a essentially a neo-homestead deal where the promise of free land that had sustained that uh, fantasy of citizenship in the 19th century and was no longer sustainable in a, fully, in a fully capitalized 20th century could be replaced by home ownership. And that deal has run through the entirety, uh, run through American history unchanged because as shocks accumulate and you get the, the crisis of the 70s, the, you know, the broader Keynesian deal between labor and capital was changed and the working class was neutered politically. And that uh, had negative effects on the working class broadly. Those effects were uh, concentrated away from political power. The people who were least politically powerful in this country were the ones who suffered the most dramatic and drastic loss of livelihood. The people who were kind of buffeted from the worst of it were the people who had gotten homes out of that deal. And that, but now with the promise of upward advancement through labor, you know, wages going away, the idea of uh, generational wealth could only be accumulated by using this, this asset that you have. And this asset ends up financing lifestyles of accumulation and consumption and status seeking that give life meaning, you know, that give you a direction and that give you a generational project, making it so that my kid can live like this, all that stuff. It's all premised on this inflating asset. And in 2008, it finally popped, finally, finally. And the new deal that came on top of that, the the new uh, arrangement of forces was the final extinguishment of that dream for any regular person. And that meant that Millions and millions of uh, generally white people who had been ideologically adhered to the American project as understood in the organs of the mainstream culture is almost overnight alienated from it. Because now 
the, the, their commitment to uh, the American project, connection to their well-being has been severed. Their well-being now comes at the expense of America, at least the way they understand it. Uh, and that means that uh, politics just almost overnight collapses away from these relatively stable polarities of acceptable ideas and discourse that had governed the center until that point. It really does seem fitting that this feeling of America running out of new frontiers onto which it can displace and provisionally reconcile the contradictions, what, what Greg Grandin writes about in The End of the Myth, that this is becoming so viscerally apparent right now with the housing crisis. In your series, Hell of Presidents, which was really excellent that you did with your producer, Chris Wade, you, you repeatedly returned to this concept of free real estate to describe how initially settler colonial expansion allowed for this escape valve to keep things from exploding, particularly with the rise of a wage labor system, the system that forced people into relationships of of dependency that never really fit with American ideals of freeholding independence as the basis for free citizenry. So to put some of your last answer in, in deeper context, what are these ideas of American freedom forged amid slavery and indigenous genocide? And then how were they challenged by the rise of industrial capitalism and then provisionally reconciled through free real estate, first out west and then in the suburbs? Well, Philip K. Dick famously said the empire never ended. And he was uh, correct in that because American freedom and now freedom that is imposed on the rest of the world by the, at the barrel of a nuclear weapon is uh, Roman freedom. It is freedoms as it was, freedom as it was understood by the, the slave-owning class of Rome. Freedom is freedom over. Freedom is not freedom to do. Freedom is freedom to command resources, other people. And that is, of course, a sustainable social value system if you have a completely self-contained and uh, empowered elite in a class system. But that is an unstable formulation that, of course, over time, as Marx points out, eventually collapses from within because it cannot sustain itself, because it cannot recognize the increased immiseration and alienation of the people that they master because they literally cannot experience it. They are, are, they are disconnected from it. So they will be destroyed. And when you get a critical uh, inflection point of human technology and population density, it becomes essentially impossible to command that way. And that's why you need liberal subjectivity, which now, but liberal subjectivity is just the assumptions of uh, princely power democratized. But that still requires someone to be in command of. And, and that once again, cannot be stabilized in a social structure because it commands all to fight against all unless there is some group that can be collectively dominated and have their surplus extracted from and then distributed to provide the consumptory element of kingly authority and power, uh, the ability to consume rather than to actually like command control of land the way that like a, a feudal overlord would because it can't sustain that level of conflict that has to be sublimated away from the populace and towards another. And that an American constitutional liberty is predicated on that. That is a recipe for disaster, and it did in fact lead to a civil war. But what has stabilized it at every point is this infusion, this creation of a new frontier of expropriation, land that does not have to be fought over within a social structure, but can be collectively conquered and divvied up. That uh, frontier, uh, the myth, as Grandin puts it, is what, can, is what sublimates and uh, resolves class conflict and, and pushes it away from uh, class 
actual like recognition of classes of their conflicting interests. It is a literal land ownership. It is a literal land dominion at first because it can be. But as industrial capitalism is emerges, the first fix is temporal and uh, spatial. Like they're all, they're all some sort of uh, space time fix, changing conditions of con- of social conflict for one. And one of the ways that was done is that the first generations of people who became industrial proletarians in America were uh, immigrants. They were not people who had ever really had encoded in them socially a value system that premised that sort of uh, liberty uh, as their right as America. So they could be brought into proletarian conditions uh, smoothly. And more importantly, prolong the moment when those people have to be brought into a wage relationship. Because the more time you have, the more time you put it off, the more things change around people. And they adapt to it without even recognizing what they're doing. And shifting one, trading one idea for freedom for another one. So that it becomes, instead of I will be a, I am free because I am sufficient by myself. I am free because there is no one above me. Becomes I am free because I have ownership of land that is dominion of mine. Even though to exercise that dominion, I have to be subservient, be submissive to engage in this wage relationship. But it allows me to uh, feel that my work is moving towards that goal of maintaining my independence. And yes, we are now living it at the end of that, when that is no longer a thing that people can imagine. Yes, many of the most reactionary, unstable American uh, political actors are homeowners, but they are precarious homeowners. If not them, their children. They they might if they have more than one kid, then that means that seeing their children grow into adulthood means seeing them grow into uh, precarity. And because they all think America is one way and supposed to be, and is yet through democratic means doing the exact opposite things that they want to be done, it means that they are now all going to look through everything through this funhouse mirror where up is down because why would they trust anything coming from a structure that insists to them that this is how this country is supposed to work? Did wage slavery pose a different sort of challenge to the American ideal of independence as the basis of a free citizenry? Did wage slavery pose a different challenge to that than chattel slavery had? How did the destruction of chattel slavery followed so quickly by the rise of the wage labor system, what were the differences between how these two different orders of of dependency, how they were kind of justified or metabolized by this American ideal of, of freeholding independence? Well, I mean, it depended on how close you were to them. I mean, in in the South, you know, there was a cultural hegemony around slavery as a social good, which then therefore had to by definition, reconcile class contradictions among white people. And that was John Calhoun's entire uh, premise of supporting slavery, is that as long as there is an uh, aristocracy of color, then th- there can be no uh, politically damaging social conflict. Among people who lived near slavery in the South, people in the hills had a different opinion. They saw this distinction as meaningful because they could imagine falling you know, into a subservient position socially. And now here's a backstop to prevent that from ever happening. No matter how much they might fail in the market, how much they might struggle to get some sustenance from their dirt farm, there is only so far they, far they can fall. And the uh, as slaves represent that possibility. Now, among Northern yeomen who are more secure, uh, that the concept of the slave 
is abstractly a competition for their with them for land because you know that is the question is is it's not slavery or freedom in the United States it's slavery or freedom in its expanding territories that really causes the civil war because the the north is largely happy to let slavery persist contained but when the question is what will be done with this land and everybody is going to be participating in one way or another in that uh vying for power either by carving out a chunk of it themselves or voting for people to send to Congress to work on their collective behalf. There's, this is a project, and it is going to be around free labor that allows for people to rise up and dominate and show their, their worth and metal through, through struggle, or that will eventually lead them inevitably toward the condition of slaves if, because they will not be able, as a small person, as an individual, to compete with the, the concentrated capital of, of the slave economy. That destroys this little the little guy, as they say, the the the, the small yeoman class, like white non slave owning white farmers were, were before the Civil War were uh, a incredibly poor, desperate group of people. They were basically subsistence farmers. They were called dirt farmers for that reason. The dream of making enough food to feed your family and also getting a surplus to allow you to buy new finished products and and get more local esteem. That project was only possible uh, in a place where it was individual landowners competing against each other, not basically corporate investors with a mass of enslaved labor. And that fear is obviously extinguished by the end of the Civil War uh, and is then replaced by the fear of wage. But again, the farther you are from the wage relationship, the less pressing that fear is. So it has bought more time to let those small yeomen accommodate themselves to this, this thing that really is going to eventually destroy them and their way of life, but not in a way that they can recognize around them because they're too busy working their goddamn individual farms. They don't have class consciousness. They don't have the ability to compare notes across a axis of exploitation and then try to address it because they're all... They're experiencing the idiocy of rural life. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so they, they... But now, slavery is not going to take their land in the West. And there is factory farm... There's factories now. But who's in them? You know, Irishmen. Some dumb patties are in there working away because they're too drunk to do anything else. Not like me, who is smart enough and capable enough to get this land and keep it. I, I think that this collapse of the, the real estate based social contract that we're living through and the corresponding crisis for the political center in terms of legitimacy and its power to confidently order the country and the world. I think that since 2016, it's often described as a situation of people polarizing either left or right. But I think there's a third option, at least a third, and a really popular one, which is the sort of crypto meme meme stock grind set that dispenses with all the platitudes and identifies the corruption and unfairness of the system and says, it's corrupt, but I can work it. I can learn the cheat code. I can make it out of this by myself, maybe with my family and friends, but not in no sort of collective fashion. What's the political significance of this thoroughly political, if superficially anti-political current that seems so dominant? Well, I mean, it's, it's the natural result of feeling pressure to act, feeling incapable of action because you are subject to capitalism, and then looking around yourself to find an escape hatch. Now, that escape hatch is supposed to be politics. It's supposed to be, in a democratic country, political. 
that's felt sense of narrowing alternatives. Well, you go down and you write your congressman and then you go down and you uh, find out who's going to have the best ideas for fixing it. And then you go and you get them to, no matter how, depending on how anxious you are, how motivated you are to see change in your lifetime and rescue you from what looks like just this, this secular progression towards oblivion, the more you feel it, the more involved you can get from posting a lot about it to camp actually going door to door, campaigning, giving money, just having it occupy real estate in your head. You're able to invest in that as a store of all that anxiety that you can't put anywhere else. And that is going away. People's faith that their political act to any degree can be meaningful collectively, individually. That means that they're going to have to do something else to avert, to deal with this sense of anxiety. And that means every man for themselves. It means how can I get out of this? How can my family get out of this? That's why the, the zombie genre is the most popular visual horror motif of the post 9-11 era. It's the recognition that there is no alternative. Uh, there is just a uh, decline to the point of total alienation from your friends and family, your neighbors rather, and and only the hope of a technological lifeboat can sustain you. So that now gives you a new place to put your energies towards becoming independent, getting crypto so that you're not slave to the in, the dollar and it's uh and the 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 mark of the beast that you have to use to buy or trade with, you know? And and Donald Trump is is was elected largely on that pitch of I'm the only one who will recognize and tell you that nothing can change, nothing will change, that this is a world of corruption and darkness, that American democracy is a fraud, but I know the secret tricks to work the system. Like Matthew Lesko can get you free money from the government. I can make the government work for you. Everyone who can like see me winking, because everyone who can be can see that and then be culturally attuned to its message because of their life experience, because we are being divided just into demographic tranches that have certain stimulus responses. And Trump shows up and hits everyone in the mind of the person who is desperate for something to change, totally alienated from politics. Rationally, I might add, alienated from politics as a solution and a thing to do with their time. Left wondering, okay, I don't have the connections to like make a bold move to get on that grind set. I work a dead-end job and I don't have uh, anybody to borrow money from. What do I do? Maybe I could vote for Donald Trump and he'll fix it. He'll be able, not for everybody, but for us, because we're in on it. And that's the ultimate, that's why Americans love being conned, because you can't be conned unless you are uh, greedy. And it's the greed that creates the trust, the shared sense that both you are in on a secret. And that's what makes you believe from a subservient position to be equals to them. Even though what you don't recognize is that there's another secret they know that you don't which is why that you will be eternally uh, scammed. But now that's it. Everybody is like looking for uh, a way out. And it's, it's just a cascading series of uh, con artists trying to get just a bucket of cash out before the, the house burns down. And that is why uh, that's the problem I have most with the conception of uh, the thing that's going to bring down America being some fascist regime. Because the fascists are gripped by this exact same psychology and dynamic as well. There is nothing different. It is also a bunch of people who believe in nothing, seeking to get out while they still can with enough to get it onto the lifeboat. The, the privatized 
economies that we all know are on the horizon, or we all believe are on the horizon, because we uh, occupy the assumption that things are going to keep getting worse in one direction as long as people, people keep acting the same way they are. Well, since I'm acting the way I am, and I can't imagine any other way to act, I'm going to assume that every other person is in this same dilemma. Therefore, I can assume that this is how things are going to end. Of course, that's not true. Events are, you know, stochastically arrayed around us, and we encounter events that rearrange conditions instantaneously. You know, the 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 weeks where years happen, as Lenin talked about, uh, and like we cannot plan and 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 chart a course of what's going to happen on a linear trajectory because we can't account for those things. But that narrative we have for ourselves soothes us away from the hard work of being vulnerable. Is it fair to say that passive income is the new free real estate, but but without anywhere near the but without anywhere near the capacity to create durable social and political forms? Yeah, it's like it is a, it's a life raft and the thing is you can get mad at that person for going after the life raft, but the alternative is doing what they have been doing, which is treading water with everyone else. Now, the life raft isn't real, but they don't know that. They're motivated along a rational axis because they see politics doesn't work, but they don't know enough about the economy. None of us do. They don't teach it to us to know, oh, this is just a, a chimera. This is, a, this is an illusion because it's ratified in every place they look because they want it to be. The internet gives us the ability to only see what we want. Even if we hate looking at it, it's what we want to see. It's doing something for us. It's pleasuring us in some self-destructive basal way, or we wouldn't be doing it because we have total freedom over what we look at. That's the whole demonic genius of the internet is it gives you an illusion of total freedom. Meanwhile, everywhere you look, what you're gazing on is going to be structured by your basest instincts because that's what the internet is designed to reflect to you. We always talk about the crisis of of the center. I mean, I do at least, and I I think it's a frequent theme on on Chapo. But yes, but, it's, but, like, <laughs> it's like one of three chords we can play at this point. But do you think that, do you think that resistance liberalism melding with never Trump conservatism does represent some new basis, however unstable for centrist politics? Because obviously, these are the easiest people to make fun of. But I mean, it is it is a formation designed to win the stable. And upwardly mobile urban middle class homeowners. The the psyche of uh, liberalism is is these two poles, two groups of homeowners, suburban basically and urban ones, uh, at war with each other. Uh, and they are the two largest demographically aligned groups of American voters, aligned at, at like such a deep level that they are able to uh, coordinate without coordinating, which is what you know. Uh, dem- democratic pro- politics is supposed to allow classes to do used to allow the working class to do no longer does uh, that is going to win them that's going to win the suburbs that went for a, a biden in uh, 2020 but the problem is is that while that is happening they are uh, the democratic allegiance from anyone who doesn't have a faith that their you know their passive income streams in the form of their uh, uh, either their it's a combination of two things. It's not just their equity. We're taught when we're talking about these these urban rich voting types uh, who command the Democratic Party now and are the the surf the the source of all their uh, triangulations. That yes, they have equity. Their kids have jobs. 
Their kids went to college and won the lottery. So they're okay. They imagine their kids will be okay if politics stays a thing. And they are the pole of the Democratic Party and why the left can, has to stop looking at the Democratic Party for anything because it will not change. It can't because it is wrapped psychically around a pole of people who cannot hear the footsteps because they have, they have equity and their kids have jobs. Have not just jobs, jobs that they can imagine are going to get them the corner office one day and their own home or whatever, even though, of course, you know, they're middle-aged and they don't have, they don't even have homes, probably. They have student debt, but their parents can imagine, you know, that because they, uh, they eat at Sweet Green every week, that they're doing okay. And of course, those kids are alienated from the Democratic Party, but less so than the ones who didn't win the lottery, who are more alienated. And the fact is, is that those alienated people are just going to either tune out if they cannot vibe with the cultural resonance of the reactionary critique of uh, status quo, or if they can, they're going to be uh, co-opted by it and consumed by it. And that means that is a larger chunk of people, especially given the disproportionate uh, influence that small rural reactionary uh, stronghold states have in our electoral system. That means that they have the winning hand demographically. The Democrats, 20 years, were operating under that idiot Regis thesis of the emerging Democratic majority. You got this because of demographics. Well, guess what? If you create a civic reactionary nationalism, yes, it's racist in all the ways you say it is, but from a different cultural vantage point, uh, the result of people having a different diet of cultural consumption does not look racist and is therefore appealing to people who find other elements of its narrative appealing. So you're going to see, and you are seeing a huge shift of, uh, of non-college educated minorities to the democratic party. I believe it is official now that white, uh, white college graduates are, are now more dispar- are, are now a larger share of the democratic uh, coalition uh, than non-college uh, minorities. Yeah, I wanted to talk about educational polarization, actually, which refers to the the rightward shift among people without a college degree and the leftward or I want to say leftward, the Democratic Party oriented shift among college. See, that's the thing is there's no left. This is supposed to be a a, a movement between three things, institutional politics and then a uh, middle class reactionary class politics and a working class politics. But that is gone. So instead, you only have this schizophrenic battle within the the working the middle class uh because the working class is literally a a uh spectator to it they can engage in it and they do but only as hostages to one st- uh structure or the other and they will only eventually be sublimated into fealty to the democrats or if they're alienated from that to non-voting non-political participation which is the option that these people always forget and the most important one by far to the rightward shift in this country is not some big shift of uh, the, the Reagan revolution was not uh, just powered by some huge shift among blue collar Democrats to the Republican Party, but also a tuning out of working class voters that has persisted. And that combination of things means the Democrats are doomed. The people, all the smart, savvy insiders who know everything you don't. They are the real, most only true black-pilled people on earth because they have literally looked at a charred hellscape future for themselves and decided it's actually, because it is 
the best we can do. It is therefore, as Dr. Pangloss said, the best of all possible worlds. And in, and yet they're striving into the goddamn <laughs> iceberg. I don't know if you've followed like recent coverage of education polarization in the New York Times from like David Leonhardt or Nate Cohn, but the issue, the way they frame it is basically college graduates becoming too woke and driving uneducated people into the Republican Party's arms. But I, as annoying as various iterations of identity politics can be, I refuse to believe that pronouns or whatever are the motor of the past half century of American history. What, and that, what's that's it? because people think, because if you're in this thing, if you're lack, locked into one of these libidinal relationships with the political process, like all these college-educated people are, including everybody who talks about this question, really, they all went to college, don't front on me on here. Some of them, oh, there's a few precious organic intellectuals, but the vast majority of the people you listen to went to college. So you're on the inside of this thing. You imagine that that uh, relationship persists beyond like the, the perimeter of the, uh, the self-elected political spectacle consumers that we are. If you have dropped out of politics, if you've decided, oh, that's all bullshit, then the, that tractor beam isn't there. The attention that you are paying to it is not being paid nearly as much outside of this, this bubble, really, uh, which means that when you see something alienating, it's only being watched by people who want to see it. Everyone else has already made a prior decision to tune all this bullshit out. And if they keep getting nothing out of politics, some of them will have gotten so addicted to it themselves that they'll have to pick a side, but a lot of them will just tune the fuck out. And that is that is the invisible uh, third leg of this this dialect that people uh, that's dialectical relationship that people are missing is is that the people we're trying to reach are not within the cone of meaning. They're outside of all of our ways of understanding politics and imagining a relationship to them. Because all we can think of when we think of doing politics is arrayed around the actions of our political system. They act first, we react, because we have no power. So with what the Democrat Party does, what the Republican Party does, that is how we have to orient ourselves. And that means that we can only orient ourselves around a, a, a public ritual, and uh, not issues, but framing of issues that is not illegible outside, but disregarded outside. And that, that more and more, the people who are most actually sensitive to how bad things are because they're touching it with their bodies as opposed to being cop uh, protected from it in a cocoon, their pain is going to be translated into some kind of action. And it should be meaningful collective political action. But the containers for that are no longer part of the set of cultural markers that form the identity of the people who need to be goddamn organized yesterday. Then what's a more materialist account then than this, than this idea that's getting pushed that education polarization is a result of college students' political correctness, propensity towards cancel culture, whatever, having upset the traditionally moral and simple-minded working men of America? What's the actual motor behind the, these tr conventional political coalitions collapsing and being rearranged the way they are? It is a... Uh schizophrenic breakdown of the middle-class liberal subject. That's what uh, politics has become. Uh, and wokeness is part of that, uh, but it's 
it has exactly the same function as every other part of it. And uh, what it is, is it is politics dominated by two factions. Again, the rich landowners or uh, the rich, uh, the wealthiest landowners who are generally owners of some sort of fixed asset, some sort of uh, material product, uh, an extractive or a productive enterprise. And then you have people who's, who are landowning in the form of homes, relatively stable, who have jobs in the f- fictional money economy, you know, in, in the financialized economy that filled in the gap of all of that working class productivity that got gutted by the neoliberal reformation of the 70s. Uh, these are the, your two groups. They all, for the most part, went to college, and a lot of them sent their kids to college. But their re- reaction to the basically an, the ritualistic indir- indoctrination into class rule in America, uh, what class rule in America would look like in, a demo- in like, you know, the post-democratic politics of the neoliberal era. Uh, and they came out with different responses that are conditioned largely by their personal, uh, a, a combination of their demographic profile and their individual uh, life experience. They either came out of that indoctrination as uh, possessors of a, a liberal idea of, they both come out as liberals. So that's the important thing. They both come out as fully believing in only one thing, themselves and, and the concept of humanity as, as a collection of unreconcilable individual consciousnesses. That is what they all agree on, deeper than anything they learned in a specific class, which is why talking about being indoctrinated in college is so funny by Marxists or whatever. Like you are, just by your social relations with your other students and the, the, the faculty and the people who work in, in the fucking lunchroom, you are getting an understanding of the world that is far fucking deeper uh, than any, any class syllabus is ever going to touch. Uh, so they believe in that. They all believe in that. And they believe that, furthermore, that capitalism serves their goals in that context. But then there comes the question of their continued misery. They're still alienated. Because we all are. That's the, that's the grim joke of capitalism is everyone is alienated under capitalism, regardless of what your actual relationship is to capital or your subjective felt one is. And that alienation must be expressed politically. And it can either be expressed politically, uh, it, it must be expressed politically in the uh, seeking of a good uh, for the liberal as for you know, the Puritan going back to the founding of this country. Virtue is uh, submission uh, to God in some form or another. The other pole of that, the sort of reactionary psychology, is the opposite, uh, that virtue is to be God. Virtue is to dominate in the, form, in the fashion that God does. And then their politics are all just a skeleton on top of that. And every issue that we end up talking about, they are spontaneously deciding by ca- paying attention to it to be the thing we care about. And then we can only, in the backwash of this, more alienated, less fixated onto this political structure because our experiences of it are so radically different. We have none of the confidence they do in its structures. We just have to react to them. And then our politics reflect that. And they are poorer for it. And I think people say that's a black pill, but only if you assume that people acting together through the veil of politics it doesn't also have a cumulative social effect and that you and that through people doing that 
new structures cannot be constructed using the machinery that we have all around us, using the technology. And I think that that will always be true as long as human consciousness exists. You said that what Biden and the Democrats would need to do in the face of the systemic impasse, what they would need to do is appeal to the people. And yet that is fundamentally and precisely what they cannot do. They can't do it. What would an appeal to the people look like? And then what is it about the Democratic Party that makes that so impossible to imagine ever happening? Because you're not just making some pat Marxist critique that liberals always are ineffectual and feckless. There's something particular about the moment. Um, I would say that I don't actually know specifically what a Democratic Party being mobilized from the top towards a a goal of actually getting people to try to do politics for their self-interest, you know, like the thing that you're supposed to do (laughs) with politics Uh, and not just vote, you know, not just give money, but all this other stuff that Democrats exist to foreclose. They were going to switch, flip the switch and do that. The only thing I know is that uh, we would be living it if Bernie Sanders had become president. I think that the real promise of the Bernie, the Sanders campaign to me was not, universal health care being a reality in America by 2028. It was not any specific policy being, being uh, victorious. It was a context where uh, an attempt could be made from the commanding heights of a culture that has been fully atomized and media, media mediated to kind of break through all of the succeeding levels of, of uh, conditioning that are having a sleepwalk into apocalypse. To basically wake us up, you know, uh, and it would be, you know, Bernie would be the fucking uh, hunchback in Notre Dame in the White House bringing a bell. I don't know what that would look like. I don't know if it would have succeeded. It's very likely it's too, we're too far gone uh, for it to work. I mean, you could argue that the evidence that we're too far gone is that he didn't win at that moment in history when he was so much called for. And it didn't happen maybe because this isn't the world where that kind of thing is possible anymore. But again, that, it can't, that is not blackpilling because we still have to fucking live. But anyway, that is what I think a lot of us who are really despondent about the current moment wish for. I know for myself, I just think if I was living in that timeline where Bernie Sanders is president right now and we have the exact same confluence of crises accumulating and he hasn't been able to do anything about any of them. Maybe we haven't, don't have a war in Ukraine. I don't know. But like, who knows if they don't do some shit like Truman didn't want to go to war in Korea. You know what I mean? I have no idea, but there would be a thing to do every day. There would be a chain of actions that would radiate through all of the uh, mediating institutions uh, of consensus reality that we partake in every day and give us a prescription for what's wrong, an embodiment of an alternative, and a plan for action. Now, again, no idea if we have the resources to turn that into victory or if we've been liquidated in turn. But my God, it would have been a thing. It would have given us all the things that we all know we're lacking and the things that we're doing, everything we know is bad for us to uh, distract from. It's that gnawing thing that makes everybody miserable all the time. And Bernie was the promise of, uh, of direction and everything. And they are vast. Every spiritual accumulation that comes with, with a uh, motivation towards a goal, a will to power is a war. It could be it, that will to power could have been uh, collectively collated and expressed. And who knows what could have emerged from such a confluence in such a moment of crisis. But again, we're, we don't get that world. 
it's easy to look back at the last years and say this was inevitably what a Biden presidency would look like. Yes, it was very easy. I want to point out that, that you I said, said it from the beginning that it looked like shit. But Before, as soon as he was the nominee, I'm like, this is what is going to happen. And we have been right at every point. But have a lot of things also been both like overdetermined and rather contingent? For example, with a slightly different Senate, it doesn't fucking matter because it's not what happened. But are there contingencies that historians will consider where with a few factors somewhat different, a slightly different Senate, we could have seen build back better past and the Bernie left credited with even in defeat, reorienting the Democratic Party and maybe beginning to realign the electorate. Obviously, that's not what happened, but. okay. see, this is where you have to kind of winnow down a hinge point towards like the minimum amount of things that have to be different given the the same conditions for to get an actual different outcome. So I would say, yeah, if you have a significantly different Senate, they might have had to put something through some some build back better country. But if in the world that we got, the world where Biden is the nominee and runs the minimalist campaign that he runs, where it is a direct pitch to rich suburbanites to get things back to normal, uh, which doesn't touch the rest of the Republican Party and only gives a lot of those people permission to vote for the Republican in their state who will keep their taxes low, you're not going to get in, throw the dice a million times, you're only going to get a couple more senators. And if you get a couple more senators, then the problem isn't mansion and cinema. It's Mark Warner or it's Chris Dodd uh, or uh, no, that, not, Dodd's gone. The fucking Delaware motherfucker. Coons. Chris Coons. <laughs> it's, it's somebody else to be a fucking guy. Oh, Coons. Just like it was Bacchus and Lieberman, but there's always another one. There's always a fucking phantom menace because the point of people like Mansion and Cinema is to take all the fucking gas because it helps them. Mansion's from West Virginia. Every time a Democrat gets mad at him, it helps him in his state because he is working against this partisan identification. And he's like, why don't be a Republican? Because if you're a Republican, he's one of 50 assholes. He has no power. He gets to be God of Washington as a Democrat. And cinema, she doesn't have to do this because Arizona isn't as partisanly skewed as West Virginia, but she has her own goofy fucking calculus that make this make sense to her. You don't have to rely on them, though, if if there's somebody else or uh, they are taken for granted. And then some, it's like, well, of course you can't get mansion or cinema, but we could, if we could have had him, if we could have had an, a, someone that beat Coons here, like replace Coons, then we could have had it. And that's, that cushion moves depending on where the target was. The, the cushion was 60 when o- Bumbler was president and they got it and it still didn't work. It wasn't enough. They did 61. Fuck out of here. Filibuster proof majority incredible will never happen i think the great reckoning that we all had was 2020 and i know that that's very uh oh yeah the people who are directly involved in this thing think it's the most important thing but it's like well it's the biggest most recent thing to have happened and that it's the last election and more importantly it's the election during in a cauldron of all the crisis that everyone who is seeking the the overthrow of capitalism has all in their fucking marrow known we're coming the reckoning is here my god where are we? How are we oriented? How are we situated against it? And the answer was the, the Sanders campaign. And it was just not enough. Uh, and we all have to reckon with that one way or the other. And I think one thing that is uh, uh, an obstacle to clear vision is the tempting desire to go, oh, if they'd done something different, there would have been a different outcome. If they had followed my specific politics, they would have gotten more voters. Therefore, my continued war against my enemies in the ether is justified because they're the reason that this didn't work. But if you look at how the election played out, Bernie was always going to lose if 
the electorate was people who vote in Democratic primaries. Because as we said, caring about politics requires an adherence, a spiritual adherence to the political process, which accumulates at the top of the income arrangement. Because America has worked for them and always has and continues to. So they are going to seek people who affirm that. So they're going to find a reason that Bernie isn't good enough. Of course, most of them said it's because it wasn't realistic. And of course, the LOL is now, oh, really, Mr. Realism, how's he doing? How's, how's, how's his agenda going? What? Exactly as bad as you said Bernie's would be? Only there's nothing to do but watch him fucking fall asleep in the Oval Office? And have uh, fucking uh, uh, mental uh, spazzes every 15 minutes? Breaking down like a fucking robot who's been asked a, a logical uh, contradiction? These f- sparks are flying out of his head. That's, that's, that's what you got. And you voted for, you couldn't vote for Bernie because you might get this. No, no, you would have. You would have had a coherent response to crisis. What it would have been victorious or not, and that's the thing. They're all afraid of losing because they're more adhered to the institutions and structures that give them their comfortable lives than they are to radically changing a trajectory that for them is not disastrous, is not apocalyptic, can't be felt that way, can only be maybe intellectualized as, oh, climate change, yes, very big concern. Oh, fascism. But they only ornament their politics with it. They're always going to be motivated by their material commitment to, po- to capitalism. And so they will never, no matter how many ads you put on TV, no matter how good you do in the debate, get enough of them. Because eventually they'll coalesce all of, uh, together around you. Even if They will get rid of their vain idea that they're ch- actually choosing from between different color swatches, actually. Uh, no, that's not white. That's taupe. Uh, that's not off-white. That's, egg- that's eggshell or whatever the fuck. Eventually, though, as we saw happen... Somebody says, okay, quit fucking around. We have to win this thing. And then they will coalesce around what they can all agree on. And what they could all agree on in 2020 was the Democratic Party, as represented by this literal corpse that was, was filled with it, filled with the Democratic Party. Uh, and now it's like, oh, no, politics involves actual human beings having to communicate agendas that, you know, uh, represent some sort of pole of action and values. And they can't do it. What bugs you the most about the panicked liberal fixation in response to Trump? Is it the Democratic Party's own unacknowledged deep complicity in it all? Is it the ineffectual procedurality? Is it the, and I mean, on the complicity point, I'll add that we're, it's not just Democratic participation in neoliberalism or the war on terror, mass incarceration, but the fact that they are actively boosting the most right-wing Republicans that is in primaries wild. around the country. The same thing that Genuinely Hillary's wild. campaign did with Trump to brilliant effect in 2016. But what but yeah. all, of all these things, what is it that drives you the most nuts about how liberals react to Trump? The thing is, at this point, I'm not mad anymore because I, I see all of this as unavoidable. Like, given their priors, they have no other thing to do. Like, it is insane to watch them bang on about January 6th and then prop up the most right-wing candidates in, in primaries. You're like, how that destroys your argument. But it is totally internally consistent. And, and in fact, the one demands the other. Because you see this crisis landscape, you all agree that you cannot do anything about it without fundamentally undermining their own positions within it, which means no one will step out without being replaced. But they still do have a desire to win elections. I mean, they do want this machine to still be around. And a lot of them do honestly believe that Republicans will just stop having elections if they win again. So they like their phony baloney jobs do sort of depend on this dance continuing. So they do have an actual motive in wanting to win. And of course, 
they get more offices, they get more access to insider information for, you know, all the criminal shit they do. So like they have actual motives to win, uh, but they cannot adhere to any collective politics because that goes against their narrow interests within the party because like a, a, uh, a, a mass politics would overthrow them because they are part of the problem and recognized as such. They are not trusted by those who would, rep- who would actually like fill the ranks of this new army of, uh, of engaged Americans. So they would be overthrown. So they can't do populist politics of any kind. So that means they have to scare the suburbanites that someone is going to upset the apple cart. And that's the Republican Party getting rid of our legitimizing institutions. Like, look, we're able to buy and sell so freely and do so well and have our property values go up year after year because of legitimate institutions that everyone accepts the authority of. If you just take over the government and overthrow all of our preciously arrayed democratic rituals, you're going to potentially fatally break this institutional faith and drive people into rebellion with the state at a a, a degree that is not uh, profitable, basically. Like, it is a bad business decision. And that is the pitch to the suburbanite who they can only look at anymore. It's the only place where there's growth. It's the only, therefore, it's the only place they can put their sore on eye. And so if that is your goal, if that's it, then the best thing to do is the way you beat a snake out of a cane field. You bang on two sides so it has to go between them. So you do January 6th and you go, look, Trump tried to fucking do a stone cold stunner on his Secret Service team so he could go and uh, uh, lead the the mobs in January 6th to, to behead uh, Nancy Pelosi. And then you make sure that the person that your Democrat gets to run against in their districts that fall is someone who goes, Donald Trump actually is great and the January 6th was good and the election wasn't real. You need that because what if it is a Republican in their district? Because remember, this is a... This is a midterm. What if it's a Republican in their district saying, I believe in January 6th, uh, or I mean, I, I agree that uh, uh, Biden won the election and we need to move on and all that, all that good stuff that, that a good liberal will think, well, or even just a good bourgeois middle classer will think, yeah, that'll calm things down. That'll, that'll get the rubes to simmer down a little bit. If they get to vote for them, they very well might, given that that's the only issue that the Democrats can organize around. But if, it's, if everywhere they look, it's a hooting pitchfork wielder who wants to bring down the whole fucking building, then they'll vote for Democrats. That's their only option. They do not have another thing in the playbook. They could do it collectively, but they don't act collectively. It is individual self-seeking bureaucrats and uh, apple polishers uh, and uh, PMC psychos who only want to advance themselves. Because if you actually cared about politics and like, you know, the polis, why the fuck would you work in it right now? Who the hell would work in the inner bowels of cap of, of politics who really believed in anything? Because all you do every day is destroy it and, and, and actively bring about worst possible outcomes. Because everything you do as a West Wing pragmatist to make the system better just is another fucking well-intentioned foot on the road to hell. And you know that. So you either you burn out and get replaced by someone who doesn't fucking care who is running frictionless and none of, and you get a bunch of them together, they can only seek themselves. So they will let the Republican party be just de- the democratic party be destroyed. Just as capitalism is letting its very sinews be destroyed because it cannot collectively act at this point when there is no more surplus to lubricate the political machinery and keep people 
actually filling its roles who have another interest other than purest capital accumulation. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. You've said that the Havana syndrome, a mysterious affliction and incapacitating CIA agents that appears to be entirely psychosomatic, that it's a key metaphor for the American condition more broadly. Why? So two-part question, though. Why, first, why are these most ghoulish precincts of the national security state losing their minds in the way that they are? And then two, what do you think that reveals about the state of the American psyche more generally? Well, as I, I was saying that, you know, these, these positions within capitalism now, when there's so little, there's so few stories you can tell where you're the good guy anymore because things just keep getting worse, even though you're in charge. And that is a contradiction that cannot be resolved by continuing to do what you do, but doing something else is going to lead you down. It's going to leave you adrift. It's going to leave you without purpose. And it's probably going to leave you without security. So you stay. It selects towards sociopathy, but there aren't that many actual real sociopaths in the world. Most people have some sort of connection to the world around them that they struggle with daily and that its struggle with it actually is like the composition of their neuroses as they try to reconcile being a good person in any way with the life they lead. And that energy goes somewhere. And so I would say among the softest corners of the national security state, uh, where you have people who are driven, ambitious, largely amoral characters, but who also have some sort of uh, residual connection to others that they launder through, you know, a uh, a self-flattering sense of virtue, and the contradictions between those cannot be in, cannot be internally resolved, and because they're stuck, like we're all stuck. Uh, they can only accumulate pathologies. And in this case, it's the body literally rebelling against the mind uh, and then putting a name on it that takes the responsibility away from you. Similarly to all the uh, all the uh, soft baby cops who pass out from touching fe- or looking at fentanyl. Or who just stand outside of the schoolhouse at, in Uvalde. Or, yes. I mean, it, it, it's paralysis is how we're all defined. And we see uh, an apocalypse bring, coming into view and we're all convinced that some of the other people who we see petrified before us are responsible for it. And then we orient our politics around 
blaming them and then seeing their punishment because we live with a state that cannot be believed in to provide us with our our desires, our base needs. It can provide us uh, with spectacles of retaliation and violence. Our armies blowing up the enemy overseas, uh, executing prisoners, even canceling people for the for the internet wusses. Like it, it just some sort of ritual of of power that can other, otherwise not be accessed in lives where paralysis is the defining characteristic. And so politics becomes just a battle between two different fantasies of revenge. And that is another reason that the Democrats are doomed because their uh, suite of neuroses is all around uh, avoiding having to do violence. And in fact, uh, abjuring uh, from oneself a sense of violence and accumulating and hoarding instead a sense of personal virtue because of course all the violence is being done by others yeah like sub, sub who you don't take responsibility sublimating for. that violence through american institutions of law and order and locking him up locking <laughs> him up exactly but like lock him up oh big deal oh i'm going to get trump's going to get frog marched it's so narrow and it's so appealing only to this strand of people for whom trump is the ultimate interloper who who blame trump because they cannot conceive of anyone else responsible because everything else should be working properly. But regular people who have only experienced decline uh, have a much larger group of people they want to see punished because they have experienced alienation, conscious alienation from the American project for much longer than these people who just got it in 2016 and want to find a single scapegoat who can expiate the whole thing. That is such a brittle fucking read compared to the broad, deep rivers of violent resentment that, that fuel the, the right-wing uh, punishment regime. Speaking of the right-wing rivers of resentment, something that both of us have discussed on our shows this year are the neo-reactionaries, the whole, the whole Curtis Yarvin seeing this recently ascended an extremely bleak intellectual movement on the far right and sort of like nakedly authoritarian. Um, I, mm-hmm. and I think you like new reactionaries, but very differently identify the American condition as having become locked within an iron cage of sorts. What sort of cage do you think we are in and what are the key distinctions in your mind between the left and right wing analyses of that cage and the proposals for how to exit it? I think the key one is that the left is as it should be, materialist in its analysis at the end of the day. It, it, it recognizes that the cage is made institutionally and structurally and materially, and that the assignment of blame as a project, finding narratives of responsibility that ascend to the highest level is fundamentally beside the point. Uh, this is the morally deflationary element of Marx that gets lost on the internet, no matter what you're putative politics are, is that Marx explicitly tried to deflate the moral component of politics that dominates liberalism by saying, it doesn't really matter. Blame shame. The system is selecting for itself people to carry out its will. And therefore, the people who will fill these positions are going to be people who will do the thing that it is needed to be done. You do not, the, 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 uh, it does not privilege agency. And that is very important and necessary because what the right does 
by privileging agency and blame is it builds a narrative where institutions like the United States, uh, structures and concepts like constitutional law are transcendent goods that generate real equality, any vision they have of the good life and the good polis, that these things generate that. Because, and that if that's the case, then some group of specific people for non-human alienated reasons that cannot be uh, relatable to you and I because they because humans wouldn't want this are commandeered and redirected our institutions towards these ends that are in anti-human instead of what is actually happening, which is that over time our ruling class has essentially been dethroned by an algorithm, bought off mostly, sometimes destroyed, but in every sense dispossessed from agency. And we are all essentially along for the ride. Now, that doesn't mean that the people at the top are not evil, demonic monsters, but their monstrosity is not where the evil comes from. The monstrosity, their individual monstrosity is not what powers it. Their punishment will not fix anything. You fix things by changing the structures, and that means engaging in political work below politics because we are in a post-political world where we have a vocabulary for politics that no longer contain the same structures of meaning that they did when they were built, the post-war era, when they were sustained socially because everyone saw an upward trajectory. Even minorities in this country who were, of course, much more uh, formally discriminated against in the 50s than they are now had a collective project of liberation and an upward trajectory even economically as like black middle classes get built for the first time after the world war II, in, in, in like real concentrations in American cities. And that fuels the social civil rights movement that provides again, that sense of direction that we have been robbed of, not by nefarious people with bug man agendas, but by the fact that it can no longer be afforded. They were always luxuries. They were always surplus redistributions downward to soothe the machinery of capitalism. They persisted under certain specific economic conditions, the post-war bonanza. But once global capitalism comes into full realization at the end of the 20th century, then there is nowhere to get from outside. Everyone is now trading together at a putative level of equality, which pulls from the center surplus, and which means there's less to redistribute. And now our politics, in reaction to that, have to build new stories. And the right has a great story about how, hey, you got that house through your own hard work. The reason that you're not rich as you want to be is that you pay too much in taxes for people who don't want to work the way you did. And if you have, if you, and you know what? Up until that point, everything they say is corresponded to your social reality. So you sign on. But now it can no longer be sustained. And so those uh, beliefs are no longer being built. So people are not going to respond to respond with the instinctive desire to protect the institutions. Like the big reason that I wrongly thought that Trump was going to lose is that I assumed that more people than did had still by 2016, a invested relationship in the political process. And the reason I overlooked that is that my personal life situation during 
uh, the Obama years was relatively stable and then towards the end of it kind of up. And that dis- totally discounts the experience of millions of people who saw the bottom of their fucking lives drop out in 2008. And when the, they found the bottom, uh, it was at a completely different level, a subterranean realm compared to what they had lived with. And now they're, have to be, they're asked to compare about politics in 2016, and they're supposed to give a shit if the fucking TV clown is clownish. That is, that is a thing that is in, that is a element of, of uh, political dynamics that is literally invisible. You can see it individually, but you cannot convey it in a way that makes it something that penetrates our understanding of politics. We will discount it because the felt experience of the people who are spending time jettisoning their minds onto the internet is one of relative uh, security. Chapo discusses politics and the sorry state of the political media a lot, but you also talk a lot about culture and about about movies in particular. And Andrew Breitbart always said, politics is downstream from culture. What, what do you see to be culture's political significance? Well, the thing is, p- politics is downstream from culture is wrong because it imagines uh, that they are distinct. I think that at this point, politics can be said to be culture. Uh, and I think that that is why it, we see a intractable uh, conflict that seems to be heading in a direction of terminal crisis because it does not have the uh, points of contact with reality that are supposed to allow politics to deliberate towards ends that can be socially recognized. You know, the whole thing that we're supposed to be doing here because the parties, you know, have been fully captured. There is no more working class collective imprint on voting results. Working class people vote. They vote for political parties, but those political parties are culturized. They are imposing, they are voting. When they vote, they are consciously and subconsciously voting for participation in a political identity, like the, the, the blues and the greens in Byzantine, the, the chariot fans. So if we accept, assume, as I said, that politics, culture, same thing, politics, essentially a facet of culture, a subgrouping of identity that one can organize around, but doesn't have to. You really don't. People think you do, but you really can opt out if you want to. It doesn't mean you don't have a political agenda or ideas. It just means that when you think about who you are in relation to the world, that definition does not have conscious political connotations. You can live that way. Many people do. And they're living, I would argue, more rationally than we are. I think we are at this point, the genuinely, you know, we're the lotus-eating, salt-licking freaks at this point. But your vote is in reality an adherence to this cultural subset because policy is determined outside of democracy completely. The, the, the thing in your heart that makes you vote for a Democrat uh, because that is connected to the misery in your life, your politics cannot address that misery. It can only address this, this funhouse reflection of it in a uh, sterilized cultural context. Then, as I said, the state can act according to culture, and that's why it's wrong to say, oh, it's just culture war when we're talking about you know, trans issues or gay issues. It is culture war, but because the state can still punish, as part of the culture war, it can enact punishment. 
but that's all it can do. Yeah, I mean, just look at the carceral state and mass incarceration. That's culture war, but deeply materialized. <laughs> right, exactly. So people want their culture to be political because they imagine if everybody watches this and gets the same idea from it I do, then that will cause some sort of phase shift towards uh, a better world. But that presumption of that is that changing an opinion matters in the absence of a thing that you can do with it that can resonate it with other people. Because eventually, the other structures of your life will essentially extinguish your concern for this thing. It will extinguish your urgency. Unless that urgency can be met by action that creates a new feedback loop, a new relationship to reality that breaks that like paralysis I was talking about. And that, I said, is the politics that's possible. But voting can never be that. Voting puts people in office who are outside of collective misery and the expression of collective misery. Because, again, you're only voting to punish people. You're not voting to help anybody, including yourself. You did a great series with Danny Bessner on hinge points in world history. What do you think was the most important missed opportunity or road not taken in American history? Does does the defeat of Reconstruction loom, loom the largest for you? To me, that's the big one, yes. I think it all starts there. Uh, I think in the figure of Lincoln, you have someone who's uh, a Hegelian. Like he is history in a top hat. I mean, he is the person who embodies a specific current of American identity uh, and political uh, subjectivity. Uh, and that is the synthesized, humanized version of that yeoman dream, the democratization of Roman liberty, which uh, is what the, the Civil War was pushing towards sort of blindly. Uh, and that is the thing. It is a pushing always, history is pushing always blindly. Uh, and then the, the figures who like take the commanding heights of history are able, if they're able to influence history, it is only by recognizing what is happening, not by trying to impose on it, but recognizing and then responding. And like the great geniuses of history, like Bonaparte and Lincoln have this in common. And he was able to negotiate amazingly the, the military element of that. And then at the moment when his mind could have been put to the task of arranging all of these structures, this newly abolitionist northern uh, white electorate who uh, had decided, who had probably, before the war, didn't much like Southerners, but uh, hated them mostly for making them have to compete with uh, black slaves. But by the end of the war, it's like, you know, they're thinking, you know, hey, you know, uh, no black people ever bayoneted my cousin at Kennesaw Mountain, you know? Like, and so there was this real consensus among the, the center of gravity of northern voters of, you know, fuck those guys. Let, let's let it, let's, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the slave can be a citizen, even though, of course, they'd been propagandized that that was impossible. They had experienced it, and many of them in person by seeing former slaves in person, uh, in, in battle uh, and in the, the process of liberating the South. You know, you have this hot, hot white leading edge of motivated abolitionists who are ready to do the actual like on the ground work of coordinating that. And then you have these newly freed slaves who are uh, expressing a massive and uh, coordinated demand from the bottom to be integrated into a political system and to make that, Amer that deeply American sinister bargain impossible in the future. Make that the creation and the subjugation of that other uh, impossible. 
basically make the math of American capitalism no longer work. Because they want to be integrated on a civic and material economic basis. Right, exactly. It's like, who knows if that would have worked again? It just creates a space. It creates a new thinning between the worlds where options open up. But his death, when it happened, and his replacement by Andrew Johnson, shuts closed the door of history, basically. Uh, John Wilkes Booth may be the most consequential single American in our history. I mean, obviously, you can't know. uh, But once that happens, and once Reconstruction is sort of doomed, and Johnson being president when he is dooms it, because the moment that you would have needed to create uh, actual land proprietorship for former slaves that they could defend politically, and then that could have translated into durable political power, which was possible, not throughout the entire South at once, but in areas with redistribution of land, with the defense of black homesteads by occupying Union troops, which you had people on the ground willing to carry out, and you had political will in Washington to carry out, backed by an electoral mandate among the white voters of the North that could have built structures that would have persisted and then dealt with the inevitable white reaction from a position of local strength that could have been wedded to a a national project of continuing reconstruction. But in those crucial years, he gave or he replaced every abolitionist general who gave him stick with a, with a copperhead. He ordered troops to, at the, at the point of a bayonet, dispossess uh, black homesteaders who had been given land by Sherman. They wouldn't have done that if they hadn't been ordered to. If they'd been ordered to defend those homesteads, they would have done it. And that order was possible with a different commander in chief. Because Lincoln talked about malice towards none, charity to all, but the reality of Reconstruction would have very quickly told him, oh, there's got to be malice somewhere, and who deserves it? The guys who fought to keep this country going because he had a mystical understanding of America's destiny. Who the hell side should Uncle Sam be on? The people who fought for it or the people who literally tried to destroy it for four years? It would not have been difficult to make that choice, I think, for Lincoln. And again, penny pitfalls. Maybe he gets killed in the second term. Maybe there's a, a, a white revolt that catches up to like Irish people in the cities who are more racially uh, uh, aware than even uh, white Protestants because of their precarious, their ultra-precarious position is as uh, proletarians in the cities. And it go, and we get another race war that we lose. Who knows? But once again, you have possibilities. You have potential, potential branches. And all those branches got clipped off by that drunk fuck in the one year he had before, because of our great constitution, before the new abolitionists or the new uh, radical Republican Congress could be brought in. He was just in charge for the first year of Reconstruction. It's like... It is the kind of thing that I, I kind of think about to, to feel a little better about everything. Because when you see that confluence of things together, all of these things snapping against any kind of more fecund future, it really makes you think, we just were never, we were never going to be the ones. But that doesn't mean they aren't somewhere. What about the New Deal? What, what if Truman hadn't been Roosevelt's successor? Could we have avoided the Cold War? Could we have won a real social democracy that created a material basis for something other than a reactionary middle class that would destroy the New Deal order and fuel the rise of the new right? Or was the right-wing sabotage inevitable? Absolutely. And, but, and, and this is how it works. Like, this is how historical causation works when you're, like, trying to follow 
follow a process as it accumulates across time is that you have to go farther back to get more consequential hinges because as time progresses, as I said, doors close, branches are snipped, and it means that the number of contingencies that can be pushed in one direction by concerted action uh, go away. So absolutely, if you have a Henry Wallace presidency there at that crucial moment, staffed by a bunch of actual communists and fellow travelers connected to uh, a wildly mobilized uh, work, uh, labor movement that was doing a strike action that it hadn't seen since the 30s, and a bun- millions of working class veterans returning home with military training. Holy shit, you have recipe for a conflict with capitalism that could have honestly resulted in something other than uh, a nuclear conflagration, which is what the Cold War could only have ever led to if it had gone to a fighting point. Uh, but like something in America at that point, who knows? Uh, but that hinge point is much less contingent, much less narrow than Lincoln. As I said, if, if Lincoln lives, you have this whole explosive possibility. Lincoln's second term. That's up to Wilkes Booth. But Henry uh, Wallace is replaced with Harry Truman because at the, at the, 19, uh, at the 1944 convention, the left wing of the party did not have the horses to keep him on the ticket. The party machinery put its foot down and insisted on the hack from, uh, from Missouri, Tom Pendergrass's man, Harry Truman, as the price for getting clearly ailing and infirm FDR, who the left of the party had put their entire, all their uh, chips on, let him get an uh, unprecedented fourth term. And there was not sufficient power within the party to prevent that from happening. You know, you could say the same thing about, uh, about getting Johnson on the ticket, but that is another thing that's more contingent because Benjamin Butler turned it down. Benjamin Butler, who could have taken the bloody shirt, or he could have, instead of waving the, the bloody shirt like he did in Congress in Re- Reconstruction uh, to pass the Ku Klux Klan Act, he could have waved the bloody top hat of the beloved martyr Lincoln's assassination and used that as a justification to pursue a putative Reconstruction. This is the Civil War general who went from Massachusetts kind of corrupt machine guy to hardcore abolitionist. Massachusetts uh, copper mouth, yes. To a hardcore radical Republican, yeah, an amazing transformation. But he was on the cards. He just turned it down. They were looking for a Democrat. Uh, but the party put its foot down in, in 44 because the array of forces had not cohered to prevent it. And so you look, well, why hadn't the, the, why hadn't the forces come together? Because of the, the stake through the heart of American labor that race represented in the time between the Civil War and the end of World War II. Why does this history... Matter. This is this thing that Matt Carp has uh, written about, and something you discussed with him uh, on Chapo. But in recent years, there's been this liberal emphasis on historical inquiry as a way to like expose this country's original sins, as though that act of indictment will have some sort of liberatory impact in the present. And then, and then, of course, the right has mobilized against this because America is not bad. America is good. Right. Well, it's uh, it goes back to that psychic politics of blame that I talked about. The, the the premise of the liberal uh, historical fixation that is currently going, uh, that is represented in flagship form by the 1619 pl- Project, is, uh, is the search for human agents to blame for our condition, which is, as I said, the exact opposite of the left-wing analysis of historical uh, action. Like, when you're looking... You, you, morality is necessary in your day-to-day life. It has to fuel you in your engagements. 
but it has no real place in the study of how we got here because those people are gone. Those ghosts have fled. We have to look at it dispassionately. Uh, and the liberal uh, uh, reaction to this sense of like panicked paralysis of, oh no, things are only going to get better. And even if I'm rich and I'm going to be okay, I'm going to have to watch it all get worse and feel bad about it because I'm doing okay. Because remember, this is the side that feels guilt as opposed to the other pole that feels nothing but rage and his desire to punish a scapegoat othered. They want they blame themselves, but they want to because they cannot they cannot punish themselves commensurate to what it deserves. They can only feel bad. They can't, you know, if they if they're responsible for as how bad bad things are as they actually are, given their moral calculus of like responsibility for capitalism, especially if you want to go Maoist third world, it's not a, they should be scouring themselves. But they don't want to do that. They would much rather take a portion of themselves, alienate it, project it onto another, and then blame them. Because like the real the, the, the real engine of 1619 is, is that white guilt. It is a desire to find some other white people who are like me in every other respect, except they have a bad sickness of the soul, an evil, a racism that is historically and generationally responsible for why we're here. And so therefore, in the here and now, they can be made uncomfortable, and that can be my politics. You said that perhaps the best case for hope right now is that none of us have any good reason to believe that we have any clue what's going to happen next, which is obviously not a guarantee that things will turn out well. But but what sort of fatalistic pessimism should that insight warn us away from? What How should the humility of knowing that we don't know what's happening or where things are heading shape how we think and act politically? Uh, as I said earlier, the, the thing that keeps us sort of paralyzed and, and uh, politically self-indulgent is that we imagine, uh, we imagine that we can see the world around us clearly enough because of, you know, we're not, we're leftists, you know, we're not, we're not besotted liberals or, or, or reactionaries. We see the world through a materialist lens and we can see the, the, the darkness that is consuming us and, and, and is extending into the future. But because we are of the left, we don't fixate on moral blame and guilt and anger and, and blame is because we recognize at every level the specific confluence of coercion and consent that go into participating in capitalism. And that coercion exists at every point. And that coercion and consent are both functions of a redistribution network. Like it, it, it does redistribute profits because it cannot fully collect all profits at the top. Because then you don't have willing participants uh, within the actual machinery of capitalism itself. To get willing participants, there needs to be some inducement. Uh, and that inducement that we assume, or that inducement, which is what keeps us sort of par par paralyzed, that allows us to um, justify our positions, is that, well, anything else would be worse. This is at least per, uh, giving me X in the moment. But Increasingly, it's not. Increasingly, those, those consent-producing inputs are uh, being reduced drastically. And that means that the calculus that held everyone in place and it holds everyone in place is at every moment changing for everyone. Now, that doesn't mean what people want that to mean is that there's going to be one collective breaking. But that can't happen. Well, the closest thing we saw was, uh, was 2020 in the summer when you saw crisis coming together in such a way that you basically demanded an explosive response. And it was, and it was directed at worthy targets. But 
it could not be contained, channeled, uh, institutionalized, because it was just the individual collective explosions. What is going to be built throughout this process of, of immiseration and crisis is individuals having their own individual moment of snapping in small groups collected around common experiences, collective continuing experiences like work. Amazon, Starbucks. Like where they are communally exploited by a common uh, exploiter. And those little collections, those little collections of, uh, of simultaneous explosions can then be networked using all of the beautiful networking capabilities that our enslavers have fashioned for us. What that means is that you are, for your own rational self-interest, obliged to engage every person you meet every day with the hope that you can make a spark. You're required to, not by some Puritan, self-denying, fantasy, religious conviction to please some some, some distant and unknowable God, but to actually relieve some of the tension and misery you feel organically and healthily, as opposed to uh, the way we generally do, which is to to uh, ignore it and, and try to, to drown it out uh, with things that only make us feel worse. So, yes, you can go black pill, but it's going to suck. It's going to be it's not it's going to be subjectively unpleasant. And yes, you'll get to the point where that's what you're addicted to. But you're going to keep having to raise the misery bar to just keep feeling something. And so it's not it cannot end anywhere good. And you and that's a that doesn't require religious belief. It doesn't require hope in any abstract concept. Just good old-fashioned self-interest tells you that you have to do that. You owe it to yourself, not just everyone else, but to yourself to do that. Well, Matt Chrisman, thanks very much. Yes, thank you for having me. Matt Chrisman is a host of Chapo Trap House and of Hell of Presidents, a podcast on American history through its presidents. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, usually, though July and August, not so much less regularly. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Demuz Frankel. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If that's on iTunes or another such site, please also take a moment to rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling people that you know in real life or even on the internet why you like the show, why they might like the show, why they should listen to the show, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Huge.